Since the murder of George Floyd, hundreds of protests against police misconduct have occurred across the country. But let's step back and take the long view. Has American policing improved? Even if the answer is yes, what more must police do to give all Americans the policing they deserve, equally, fairly, and free of racial bias? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd geek and guide to all things in the criminal legal system and still somehow happily ensconced in that fabulous day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Beginning in late May of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, captured on cell phone video, the United States has seen demonstrations and protests in big cities and small towns like we've not seen in many years. Protesters have decried the death of Mr. Floyd and so many others, Breonna Taylor, Richard Brooks, Daniel Pruden, on and on at the hands of the police. These demonstrations also protested systemic racism generally, going beyond the actions of police. Some cities, most notably Minneapolis, just days after Mr. Floyd's death, declared that they would make a fundamental change. They would actually disband the police department to be replaced by something else. In this audio from the AP and the New York Times, here's part of the statement by the leader of the Minneapolis City Council announcing that nine members of that body, a veto-proof majority, had made a decision about the future of their police force. Take a listen. Our commitment is to do what's necessary to keep every single member of our community safe and to tell the truth that the Minneapolis police are not doing that. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe. Here in Pittsburgh, where I'm based, we've experienced many of the same things. Protests on the streets, difficult confrontations, the use of tear gas, rubber bullets, and other less lethal munitions. Our mayor formed a task force to come up with a comprehensive plan of reforms for the police department. I was a member of that task force. And, of course, all of this came against the backdrop of a deadly pandemic that has damaged the country and killed more than 200,000 Americans, as well as the most contentious election anyone can remember, in which the incumbent has often sought via his words and actions to amp up the possibility of violence. This has all been so intense and so awful that it's easy to forget that we have seen other periods of difficulty, anger, and frustration involving the police and race, as well as mass demonstrations, burning and looting, uh, focused on or started by police action. There was Ferguson, Missouri, and its aftermath. 
in 2014 and 2015. There was the Rodney King incident in Los Angeles and all that followed in the early 1990s. And then, of course, the 1960s, an ongoing campaign for the civil rights of black Americans, the anti-Vietnam War movement, riots and unrest and looting and burning across the country, the assassinations of both Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy within just months of each other in 1968. According to the Kerner Commission, a large number of the riots were actually set off by incidents of police violence or police misconduct against blacks. So this seems to be as good a time as I can think of to ask some questions, looking both backward and forward. In terms of policing, especially as it impacts black Americans, have things changed or improved over the last several decades? If the answer is yes, has enough changed quickly enough? And how much does the answer depend on what demographic category you happen to fall in? Are you white, black, or brown? With that historical perspective, how does the present moment look to someone who's been around a while, and what must change looking forward? Our guest today is the right person to answer some of these questions. David Cooper is a former police chief as well as a longtime writer and commentator about policing in a democratic society. He was a police officer in Minnesota, eventually becoming both a detective and a trainer in the Minneapolis Police Department during the 1960s. He became the chief of police in Madison, Wisconsin, the capital of that state, in 1972, at a difficult point in the relationship between the department and the city's residents, and he remained in the job for over 20 years, repairing that relationship, changing the way that policing was done, and leaving the department in much better shape than when he found it. Listeners who have been with Criminal Injustice for a while may recall my interview with Cameron McClay, then the chief of police here in Pittsburgh, in episode 25. McClay served 30 years as a police officer in Madison, and he was actually hired by Chief David Cooper. After retiring as Madison's chief in 1993, former Chief Cooper became an Episcopal priest. Since 2005, he has served as priest in charge at St. Peter's Episcopal Church in North Lake, Wisconsin. He's also a prolific blogger at Improving Police, the Improving Police blog, and he's an author. Among his books is Arrested Development, a veteran police chief sounds off about protest, racism, and corruption, and the seven steps necessary to improve our nation's police. The second edition was published in 2017. And of course, there's a link to the book up on our website now. David Cooper, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Well, thanks for having me here. I've, um, I've heard your blogs and follow them for a while, so I'm quite familiar. It seems like we're, we're old friends. And uh, what a great title, Criminal Injustice. <laughs> well, I'm glad you appreciate it. Take us all the way back to the beginning of your career, if you would, to the early 1960s when you were starting out. What was policing like then? What kind of training did you get? What were attitudes and 
uh, uh, beliefs within policing like? Were there, were there black officers? Were there women officers? Tell us as much as you can. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. 19, 1960. Okay. Um, so um, I got a job so I could uh, uh, um, work at night someplace uh, and, um, and go to school during at the university during the daytime. So, whoa, why not be a cop? I was a Marine. Marines are only trained for two things, either to swab a deck or to be a cop. So I decided I was tired of swabbing decks. Okay. So, uh, so I joined this rich suburb, Edina, Minnesota, and there's nothing, there's no place better for a cop to start than a rich suburb. Why? Because you learn to respect people. Because white people who have money don't want sassy, nasty cops. Uh-huh. And soon you're not working there. So it was a great, great start. I, so I did uh, two years there because I was 21 when I started, and Minneapolis required you to be 23 years of age. So I, I was on this department for a couple of years, going, going to school at the university, and uh, it was a good start. And then a couple of years later, I joined uh, the Minneapolis department. Now, what was it, what was it like? What was my training? My training was, uh, they said, go down and get a uniform at this haberdashery. I got my uniform, go, go buy a gun. I bought a gun. I came to work. Uh, sergeant uh, said, come on, ride along with me. So we got into the car. And for a week, we, um, we drove around the city. We went different calls and things. Okay, I, I kind of get the idea of this here. Then, um, then my, my five days was up. Okay, you're off for two days now. Uh, I'll see you when you come back to work. Okay, so I thought, oh, good. You know, nice first week of training, right? So when I came back from my two days off, the sergeant was there, and he gave me uh, keys to, the, to a car. He gave me a um, state statute book. He gave me city ordinances and a map of the village and said, go. So I got into the car and started driving around for somebody to call me on the radio and give me an assignment. And that was my police training. That was it. Okay. So um, what kind of, you seem even now, and I'm sure then as a very aware sort of person, um, when, if ever, did you begin to notice differences between Minneapolis and Edina? Did you notice uh, anything different about the attitudes of police, how they serve the citizens? Yeah, when, when we were on the border of Minneapolis, so I'd, I'd run in once in a while, we'd share calls with, with Minneapolis cops, and they were, they were quite different from the people I worked with, who were you know, fairly well-educated, well um, um, good, good people. Uh, and, uh, you know, we didn't, um, you know, there, were, there was a code there. We treated everybody with respect. I mean, that was, that was the way you did, even, even people who weren't even uh, village residents. So I know it's a different, but, but, but I really wanted to, to get into the city. I really wanted to, to see, you know, big department policing. So when, it, when I joined Minneapolis in 1962, our training director was, um, was a man who was a naval officer in World War II, uh, ed very highly educated, a uh, really good set of principles, and he sort of instilled on us about the idea that we, 
you know, we don't, we never break the law to enforce the law. We treat everybody with respect. And so I had a four week uh, recruit school. And interestingly, in, in my recruit class was the second black officer in the Minneapolis Police Department. Second. Second, 1962. Um, Ray Presley sat, sat in the back. He was a very light-complected African-American man. And I sat towards the front um, with my friend, lifelong friend, Bill Mavity, who left the department to, uh, to go to law school and then decided he was going to go for law school rather than anymore being a cop. But we've remained friends over the years. And the FBI would come in and they would make these racist jokes all the time. And uh, so- How did people react to the jokes? Well, nobody, nobody laughed, so, so they got worse. So we, so, we took a, <laughs> so we took a break and Bill and I went up and uh, said, hey, uh, agent, um, I'd, I'd like you to know that, um, that we, we, we have a the Negro in our, in our class and we really don't think that these jokes are appropriate. And he was greatly embarrassed. He, he, never, he never corrected himself, he just went on with the class. But, um, but there, was, um, there was integration in, in Minneapolis 1962. We also, you know, of course, didn't have any women in our class. The 1967 President's Commission had, had no concept that, that the ranks of police might be filled with women. I mean, mm-hmm. it was out of that. And when I went into Burnsville, you know, was, the idea was to, uh, it was my first chief's job for four years, was to bring college graduate into the police department and uh and we never thought about women <laughs> man that just uh, wasn't on the radar then it wasn't on the radar and uh until i went to madison and figured out what was going on and i could make the kind of commitment that i really think in addition to people of color and various backgrounds on the police department we should also have women was was a big change madison police department 1972 uh, I think there were maybe seven or eight women who were juvenile officers. Contrary to the men, the women had to have a four-year college degree. But the men did not. Men did not. They they could not carry weapons, and they could not compete for promotion. Oh my! Perfect yeah. storm, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so so not only did we have to bring people of color in the police department, we had to bring women women in, and um, and that was probably the best thing diversifying the department. It took a long time. It took me, you know, 10, 12 years to bring 25% of the department were female. And after I left, it surged up to 35%. Ah. So, so I, I can't say enough about the importance of women in policing today. I can't say enough about it. Interesting. So integrating women into the police force uh, is a big change from when you started. And of course, integrating African Americans, whether male or female, another big change because the, as you said, the second black officer in Minneapolis coming on with you in the early 1960s, and certainly there were black people in Minneapolis. What was the general attitude uh, of regular officers towards blacks or women uh, in the 1960s? Well, just like it is today, David, we live in a racist society. And, and how do good cops operate in a racist society? I think that's today's challenge. 
how is it that good cops can learn to relate and treat with dignity and respect people who are poor, people who do not have the same color skin they do? That, that's, that's the real challenge. So the, the attitude in, in Minneapolis, I, I quickly figured out and a great benefit of being a, a real working on a degree in sociology was to, to really understand, um, my focus was on deviant behavior to try to you know, get a handle about what, what, is, what is behavior out there? What is criminal behavior? What is deviant behavior? And then to, to come to the, to the understanding that you know, the reason we were there in our numbers, uh, the orientation of the department was to the north side of the city and the black community. And it's been that way ever since. And it's been that way in most cities. So how do we bridge that? That's, that's the challenge today. How do we bridge that? When you say or your orientation was to the north side of the city, can you explain a little bit about what you mean by that? I'm not sure everybody will know. Okay. The orientation means the focus of policing. Uh, street crime, drugs, um, uh, tippling houses, uh, prostitution, all, all focused on, the, on one part of the city where black people lived. Uh-huh. And, that, and that's something, you know, we need to realize today. I mean, you know, police have got to be, they, they've got to understand the system of slavery. They've got to understand um, the whole business of slave patrols. They've got to understand when, when white cops tell me, well, why don't those black people just get over it? I tell them they have a grandfather at, at probably their home who talks about life under Jim Crow. And you're telling them to go ahead and forget that. And when things are replicated to be the, you know, when I talk to, I, I have yet to run into a black person in which, you know, I've established a relationship with, I can't say that I, that I would say, tell me, tell me your latest, your, your, tell me your latest police contact. What was that like? Um, white people don't have those contacts. No. No. And I don't have those contacts. No. Mm-hmm. Not this, not certainly the same way. Not That's at right. all. That's right. And this is still true today. Um, yeah. So when you uh, arrive in Madison in 1972 as the chief, what was the situation there? I mean, we all tend to think of Madison as a sort of progressive place. It's a university town as well as a state yeah. capital. What was the situation with the police department there? So the, for a number of years with both um, anti-war and uh, civil rights issues, um, you know, it was the war at home in, in Minneapolis, Campus University of Wisconsin. The police and the students were at each other's throat. They, they hated each other. They just, they just wanted to, you know, just beat each other up. So there was um, a bobbing of Sterling Hall, which was a big, a big issue there. Uh, Army Math Research Center, um, that that created a lot of shock in the city to have that bombing, um, and then there was um, a Dow Chemicals uh, recruitment uh, on the campus. And Dow Chemical, all of us the, the company behind Napalm, the Napalm Company, they were recruiting on campus. So there was a sit-in in the hall uh, of the recruiting area, and you know, shutting down the recruiting. Students were protesting. And uh, the Madison Police Department was called in to assist the university police. Uh, they got inside the building. There was pushing and shoving. And the nightsticks came out and the heads started being battered. 
and 15 or 16 students went to the hospital, seven or eight police officers went to the hospital. So, so when I came to Madison, one of the commissioners on the, on the police commission said, um, he said, remember, um, State Street runs between the, the, the city and the, and the capital and the university. So he said, remember, there's two ends to State Street. There's the capital and there's the university. Good advice. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, David, never forget, the first day of the demonstrations, the issue was about the war. The second day, it was about the police, and it remains to be about the police. Ah, good advice indeed. Yeah. So, so I, I have had having done some studies about uh, about um, you know uh, Liban and Kinetic goes back to you know the uh, French Revolution. I mean, there wasn't a lot of literature on how to how to control um, mass groups, but um, somehow. Um, some and I don't know where I got this from. Is that it made sense, just like a street encounter, to start out soft. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and it was of course the the, the work that um, that they've done in the UK about soft policing. You know, gave me the data. Uh, you know, thirty years later to say what we were doing was the right thing, and that we start out soft. Officers in blazers. Uh, talking to the people in the crowd, asking about expectations. Tell them we were there to protect their civil rights. We were not the issue. Um, passing out leaflets saying, this is what you can expect from us. This is our mission. This is what we're doing. And if possible, to meet with those leaders before the, the day of the demonstration. And uh, I, I always had, you know, geared up officers available sort of off camera if, if necessary. But I expected officers to work with the crowd, and um, you know, tw- twenty-one years we never lost a, a demonstration or a protest. It never went awry. I see. And um, and it became the called became to be called the Madison method of of handling crowd control. And um, I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, um, uh, uh, Professor Stott in the UK, looking at the football crowds developed the theory of the, of the, of the soft, soft approach. And mm-hmm. the, the best example, you know, I'd, I'd give it again. If you've got a, a rowdy, see, you've got two, two drunks in a football stadium. Uh, they're obnoxious. They're spilling their drinks on people. They're just really obnoxious. Okay. So you got, to, you got two, two ways to approach this thing. You send a male and a female officer in there together in uniform, and you say, because everybody else knows these guys are obnoxious, you guys got to keep it down. They give some back talk, and the crowd says, listen to the officers. You, you, you behave the officers. Mm-hmm. The, officers are, the officers are trying to have it so this game is, 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 is a good game for, for, for all of us here. Now, now behave yourself. Send five officers in with body armor and helmets on, and pretty soon, everybody's throwing beer at the police. Right, you have a melee. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So why haven't we learned this? <laughs> yes. So you leave Madison then in the early 90s. Uh, as I said in the introduction of your work, the, the department is in better shape. The relationships are in better shape. Um, and uh, what kind of shape would you say policing as a general matter was in 
uh, in the 90s, early 2000s, um, as far as uh, uh, the ways that police serve people, especially with regard to race relations. So I thought we were on a move. I thought that the that we were in, and I talked with an old old friend of mine, who's uh, still doing some teaching and policing. Um, we we thought we were in the golden age. He said golden age. I said you you you've got it right. The golden age is that. We're, we're on a path of improvement. Look at, look what we've done here. Our, our officers are better educated. They're better trained. We've got a better equipment. You know, we never had personal radios. We, we never had body armor. Um, we never had a lot of that. This, this, is, this is great. We're, we're becoming diversified. We're starting to understand a little bit better about, about race in the country. Um, by gosh, it, 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 it's just going to get better and better. And some departments are, are taking our, our model, as Cam McClay did, of continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. It's a constant, we're gonna, we want to improve. And we made some changes about leadership. We're listening to the men and women in their ranks. We're helping, engaging them and finding ways to move forward. This is really good. And then three airplanes got commandeered in 2001 when the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and that field attacks. in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. those and it all changed. We went from guardians to warriors. Give me the gear. We need the MRAP. We need the automatic weapons. Mm -hmm. We had in Homeland Security, every weekend we should expect we're going to have a terrorist attack in our, in, in our town and city. So we geared up. The terrorist attacks never happened. It was obviously a one-time effect, and we could talk about why that was, but it didn't happen. But we ended up with a different attitude, a different, a different mind, a different heart about what policing in America is. Yeah, warrior is different than guardian, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the military, what you, you're supposed to seek out and destroy the enemy. That, that's what warriors do. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we have, we have a good military trained to do that. But it's not what police do. Uh, police are guardians. Police are guardians of their protectors of the Constitution. They're, they're social workers in blue. They're, they're there to model the important values that we, we see in our country about being, being civil and respectful and a decent and compassionate person. Uh, that's, that's the glue that I think that holds a democracy together. And after 2001, with the great uh, turn towards warrior-style policing, you get something entirely different. If you've been on a trajectory towards continuous improvement and better relations before, it seemed like that got lost. Yeah. What happened to community policing? Well, first of all, when we started community policing, it was that everybody had a community policing program. And we kept on saying, and through the work in the uh, POP Center, Problem-oriented policing. That's right. A, a great repository that most police don't even know about, which is online, which can, which can help you solve problems, all kinds of problems in your community. And, you know, it never gets, it never gets highlighted as it should. So, so we, we had a style of policing called, you know, community-oriented. I like to call it neighborhood because I thought too many people are calling it community and it's a program and it's just the same old police department with, um, well, <laughs> Herman, 
Herman Goldstein tells me a great story. Herman Goldstein being the guy who came up with the idea of uh, problem-oriented policing. Yeah, yeah. And, a, and, and a mentor and a, and a colleague and a dear, dear friend of mine. Professor at the University of Wisconsin. Yes, who died this past year. One time he was in New York and uh, he, um, he sees this uh, New York NYPD car. It's probably, probably early 80s or so. And it said, um, uh, community policing unit. And he said, oh, this is really great. This is really... So he went up to the officers. And so I, 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 I see you have community policing there. Could you tell me about that? What, what, what does that mean? And he says, buddy, just what the F it says. <laughs> <laughs> kind of tells you everything you need to know right there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Let's take a quick break here. We are with David Cooper. He is the former police chief of Madison, Wisconsin, 20 years tenure. Uh, And he's also the author of a book called Arrested Development, which includes the very provocative subtitle, The Seven Steps Necessary to Improve Our Nation's Police, among other things. We'll be back in just a minute. Stay close. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police fire EMTs, whatever you need, when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus with Simply Safe there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe, S I M P L I S-A-F-E, that's simplysafe.com slash injustice. Hi, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice, and my guest is David Cooper, He is the former police chief of Madison, Wisconsin, and the uh, author 
of a book called Arrested Development about policing and where it needs to go now. He's also a blogger of some note with the Improving Police blog. And we have been talking about the history of policing over the last decades, the question of whether it has improved, uh, the effect of the 2001 terrorist attacks on policing, uh, taking policing in the direction of warrior style policing. So here we are now, uh, Mr. Cooper, in the late 2000 teens and 2020, and there could not be more dissatisfaction with American policing as it currently is. You know, you wrote a blog post uh, just a, a couple of weeks before this date on which we're talking called The End of My Dream. And uh, I, I was so struck by this because you're a person who's believed in continuous improvement in policing uh, and the things that need to be done to keep it getting better. And you seem to be saying, uh, I'm not sure we're going to be able to go forward. If, if there were things that you wanted people to know that had to be done right now, uh, to keep policing moving in a positive direction, despite our difficulties right now, what would those most important things be to get policing both back on track and moving forward again? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's sad. I mentioned in the book that there's four obstacles that, um, that, that sort of restrain and, res and, um, and keep police from improving. And they have to do with uh, what I call um, anti-intellectualism, for want of a better word. The idea that, that education really doesn't matter, uh, research doesn't matter, academia doesn't matter, and successful things that even other police departments are doing doesn't matter. The second one is corruption in the broad sense, you know, not uh, you know, Tammany Hall corruption, but I'm talking about testa lying. I'm right. talking about 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 the fact that there are district attorneys in this country have a list from of, of their local police department with officers whom they will not put on the stand because they do not tell the truth. So what you're talking about is 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 sometimes called noble cause corruption. The idea yes, that yes. it's okay to break the law, as you said very early in yeah. the interview, uh, if That's we're enforcing right. it. That's right. That's right. And we see this every time, every time in one way or another, a person is shot by police, often a young black man, is what we, we say, well, look, look at his record. Look, look what kind of person this is. And, and this might have been a bad way to get him now, but, but it's a bad guy off the street. Yes. And that's, that's that kind of noble cause there. So, so that, you know, not, not being forthright, um, uh, not, not, being, uh, not being open. The other is, and, and we have to deal with this, is, is the violence. We, our police, have a higher level of violence than almost any other civilized country in the world. I mean, we use a lot of violence, and that includes the, the thousands of people, roughly, that we continue to kill since 2014 when we started looking at this, thanks to some journalists Right, uh, not the government. Yes, right, the government, but the journalists. Okay. Yes. So, so that that has to be be dealt with, um, and that would be you know de-escalation, uh, uh, peer intervention. All those things are really important. But but what has not happened today, 
and and I have asked this article this on my blog. I've asked it anytime I I speak publicly is is I'm saying to white America, um, aren't you listening? I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but since since 2015, I have heard uh, an ex, ex a highly um, emotional uh, cry from people of color that have said essentially, "When are you going to stop killing us?" It's that yeah. simple, isn't it? Yeah. When are you going to stop killing us? Okay. And and because that 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 question has not been answered, we we have we, uh, there there's been a loss of trust in police, and with a loss of trust comes a loss of support, and with a loss of trust and support comes danger to police. If we increase trust, if we increase support, police are able to do their job well. They're able to solve crimes, and people are not trying to harm them. <laughs> it's, it, it is very simple to me. And, you know, I learned that uh, 1968 in, Ma in uh, Minneapolis after Dr. King was killed. Uh, I, I went to the captain of my precinct and said, Captain, I think we should put a footbeat down in the black neighborhood. So, well, we've never had a footbeat in a black neighborhood in the entire history of this police department. Well, let's try it. And he was a, he was a brave captain. And uh, so I went down there just after the King riots and worked on foot in uniform in an all black community and found out that you can build trust. You treat people with the, the fourth obstacle, respect. And that, that disrespect is another reason why, why police are not being effectively. And that means that, that means even if people are mean and nasty to you, officer, Professionals don't let it bother them. So, I'm sorry you feel that way, sir. Uh, I'm trying to be fair. I'm trying to listen to you. Um, let's let's talk about this. Um, we don't want to do that anymore. And I, very, and we've seen these on these street encounters. I've watched every one of the videos that are available since since Ferguson. You know, people don't take time. People quickly with their weapons out. It's the way we eliminate this, you know, the, the black kid who's mentally ill with a knife down the street is a death sentence in almost every city. It shouldn't be, because we've seen in other cities that doesn't happen. There, there's a video with a bunch of police in the UK have got a large black man in the middle of the street with a big machete, and what they're doing is they're getting garbage can covers <laughs> to protect themselves, and eventually they swarm this guy without killing him and take him into custody. Yes. Yes. Those are, those are profound points. Do you think that the failure to come forward and change on these things, I mean, it seems to me deeply systemic, but are there particular pieces of the system that bear more blame than others? I mean, we've had fingers pointed at sometimes police leadership, sometimes police unions, sometimes uh, the American public, which uh, seems to support these kind of things, uh, the the lack of interest by Americans who are not black. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm I'm, I'm going to say something that is, is going to be probably get people get angry, but 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 so so after after the George George Floyd murder, um, and people asking me what to do. Even in, in my own city, 
which, which had a police car set on fire and the business district trashed, which says to me, even in my former old city, there ain't any trust there anymore, that there, there's big trouble here. And this is what I said, and it comes, from, it comes from my Marine days. I used to be a captain's driver when I was assigned to an aircraft carrier. And he was a flyer, and, and uh, so you know, he wanted to get his flight hours in. So whenever we were ashore, we'd go to the local naval air station, and, and he'd go and fly. So one day I'm taking him there, and, uh, and he went, in, went, I went into the flight area, and they said, Captain, uh, uh, it shut down today. Oh, what happened? He said, well, one of our jets just crashed, and uh, we don't know why it crashed, so we have grounded all aircraft until we get this fixed, called a stand down. Uh -huh. I think if we're gonna get out of this mess we are in today, and I hope some young officer hears this and when, I, when he or she has the chance to bring it up, is I suggested that the city stand down. I suggested that they ask the county to police the city for a period of 36 hours so that the police department can come together and talk about the problem and then go out and talk to the community and listen to what they expect their police officers to do and then report back to the community, this is our improvement plan to deal with the problem. We want your support, we want you to help us and we will have measurable goals to report to you how we will be doing this and then get back to business. Because unless we reimagine this, this, this function of policing in our grand democracy, reimagine it to be the kind of function that police, that people want from their police, we'll never get to where we want to be. That's David Cooper. He is a former police officer and former chief of police in Madison, Wisconsin. He's now an Episcopal priest. And among his books is Arrested Development, a veteran police chief sounds off about protest, racism, and corruption and the seven steps necessary to improve our nation's police. It was published in the second edition in 2017, and we have a link to it up on our website. David Cooper, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for being my guest. Thanks, David. I greatly enjoyed talking with you and will continue to be a good follower of criminal injustice. Thank you. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Branch, and this story of a lawyer and judge behaving badly from the Denver Post and the ABA Journal News Online concerns former Judge Ryan Kamata of Weld County District Court in Colorado. It seems that former Judge Kamata was a longtime stalwart of the community in which he served. He was well-known and well-liked, and this created a minor problem in one particular case. Among the duties of district court judges in Colorado, they get asked to grant warrants for searches or arrests in criminal cases. They are the ones to decide whether police have probable cause. Do they have enough evidence to do the search or make the arrest? In one case, former Judge Kamata got a request for a warrant against someone he knew, a person with whom he went to high school years ago. And it was a serious case, too. 
drug trafficking investigated by the feds. As we know, Judge Gamada is of this community and has been around for a long time, so no big surprise he might know a person involved in a case. It was quickly agreed that former Judge Kamada should just recuse himself and the request should go to a different judge. Okay, no problem. There are other judges and that should have been the end of it. But it wasn't. Because instead of just keeping his mouth shut and moving on to the next case, former Judge Kamada decided he had to take action. There was a problem. The problem? The guy under investigation for drug trafficking was apparently hanging around with one of former Judge Kamada's good friends in the present, also a friend from high school. So former Judge Kamada texted his friend in the present, told him to stay clear of the old friend, the target of the investigation. I tell you, what's better than having a loyal friend who's a judge and who doesn't keep his mouth shut when the law says he absolutely must? So the friend was warned, and the friend warned the drug trafficker, old friend. And so, just like that, a sitting judge took action that compromised an ongoing federal investigation. When the whole thing unraveled, Judge Kamada had to resign, becoming former Judge Kamada. He was disbarred, and wait for it, he has pleaded guilty to federal charges of obstruction of justice. Yeah, that's what happens when you mess with a federal investigation. Obstruction charges. Sentencing of former Judge Kamada will take place in December, and according to the Denver Post, Judge Kamada, that would be former Judge Kamada, could face between 12 and 41 months in prison. According to his attorney quoted in the Denver Post, this is all an unforeseeable one-time lapse of judgment. The lawyer said, quote, Everything I've heard about him is that he was a great lawyer and a great judge who simply made a mistake. And he's paid dearly for it. Well, yeah, but no. Focus on what the lawyer said. Kamada, quote, simply made a mistake. As in, a mistake. One mistake. Because that part, a mistake, one mistake, that wasn't True. Now, while not nearly as serious, a bar investigation that followed the drug case debacle uncovered a host of other situations in which former Judge Kamada just couldn't keep his mouth shut. I mean, just couldn't keep his fingers off his phone. The guy had a habit of sending out messages and group texts and so forth containing confidential and embarrassing information from his court, even from his former practice, to friends and others. Examples. He texted a photo of divorce papers from a case before him in the group chat. Kamada allegedly wrote that he was, quote, going to grant this today, referring to granting the divorce, quote, so she is free game tomorrow night, referring to the soon-to-be-divorced lady. He discussed a pending child neglect case, disclosing information about the family and the fact that the mother had overdosed. Former Judge Kamada talked about a former client of his by name in a group text saying, I did her custody, blank, and she is one strange cat. 
Quote, if that kid lives, I'll be shocked. And here's a nice one. Former Judge Kamada looked up information on a criminal defendant for a friend. Kamada allegedly texted that the defendant, quote, wasn't convicted of the sexual assault, but he was on other charges and ended up in blanking prison, man. Oh yeah, he was blanking a 14-year-old and gave her cocaine. Don't say anything, man. Close quote. So, a mistake? As in one mistake? No, this is one pattern of mistakes. If there was one mistake here, it was making Kamara a judge in the first place. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Past Tense Judicial Division. And that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, you can call it in and ask Dave at 412-407-3389. That's 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. You can also write out your question on our Ask Dave tab on the website. Remember that we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and want to help, do that at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. We really do appreciate that support. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. (laughs) 